The following is a ministry of City Life Church in St. Paul, Minnesota. We hope you find this teaching encouraging and instructive. Perhaps you are currently a follower of Christ or are perplexed, skeptical, or even antagonistic to Christianity. Regardless, we would love to hear from you. Please contact us at info at citylifetc.org. Thank you for listening, and please contact us if we can be of service to you. Peace be with you. Just as the ancient Israelites did, please stand for the reading of God's word. Today's scripture reading comes from the book of Galatians, chapter 2, verses 15 through 21. We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. But if, in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. For through the law, I died to the law, so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Madeline. Well, in a congregation of this size, I imagine that several of you grew up without the approval of your father. No matter uh, what you did, no matter how hard you worked, no matter how much you tried to be a good kid, it just seemed that nothing was ever enough. For whatever reason, your father just didn't seem to notice you or appreciate you for who you are. For whatever reason, your father was unwilling or perhaps unable to verbally express his love for you, his delight in you, and his approval of you. And because uh, we were made to receive that love and delight and approval from our fathers, I imagine that the absence of it uh, may have affected you uh, in so profoundly negative ways. Perhaps you uh, struggle often questioning whether or not you have any real worth as a person or you wonder whether or not you're able to contribute anything of value and maybe you are, uh, diff- have difficulty resting and you're always working tirelessly to prove to yourself and to others that you do have worth and value. Or perhaps you um, felt like you never really belonged to your family. There, that wasn't a place where you were deeply loved and unconditionally accepted by others. Or, or maybe the absence of your father's approval created insecurity within you such that it's difficult for you to form significant relationships with others. Or, or maybe you sought the, the approval that was lacking from your father in unhealthy relationships with others. If that's your story, I want you to know that I'm so, so sorry cannot imagine how painful 
and confusing that experience must have been and perhaps still is for you. According to the Bible, that's the situation that all of us are in by birth with respect to our heavenly Father. Not at all because he is unable or unwilling to shower his love and his delight and approval upon us, but because there is something within each one of us, the Bible calls it sin, that causes us to rebel against God, to, to uh, ignore him and to try to live life on our own without him. We're all often like that younger brother in the famous parable of the prodigal son that Jesus told. We, we basically say to our father, yeah, give me the inheritance and then I'll be on my way, thank you. I'd like to have the good things that the father gives me without the father himself. And so our heavenly father is left waiting for us to return so that he might shower us with his delight and his love and his approval. And for that reason, the result is often the same, right? Because we were made for a loving relationship with God, the absence of that approval and delight in our life uh, causes us uh, to uh, wonder whether we have any worth or value or anything to contribute, and we're always restlessly trying to prove to ourselves and others that we do, or maybe we just become depressed and give up on life altogether. Because we lack that approval from our Heavenly Father Uh, We may realize that we're not part of his family. We may long for that community where we're loved and accepted by others. We may uh, look uh, into relationships with others and demand that they provide for us that approval, that love, that affirmation that only God can give. Or maybe because there's that hole in your heart that is meant to be filled by the love and delight of your heavenly Father, you're always seeking to fill it in unhealthy activities and unhealthy relationships. The question I want to ask you this morning is this. How can you live in the absolute certainty that you have the love and the delight and the approval of God as your heavenly Father? That's the question that I believe is actually deep in the heart of the great doctrine of justification. That's the question that the Apostle Paul answers very clearly and concisely for us in this passage from Galatians chapter 2 that Madeline just read. Now, because we're jumping into the middle of Galatians, I need to give you just a little bit of background information on this passage so that you can make sense of it. Um, It's important to understand that in these verses, Paul is summarizing for the Galatians an argument that he had earlier with the Apostle Peter when Peter came to visit Paul at his home church in Antioch. You can read about that incident in the verses right before our passage, Galatians 2, 11-14. It's also mentioned briefly in the first two verses of Acts chapter 15. Basically what happened is this. The Apostle Peter comes down from the church in Jerusalem to the church in Antioch. When he arrives, he discovers that under the leadership of the Apostle Paul, Jewish and Gentile Christians are having full fellowship with one another. They're worshiping together. 
They're spending time in one another's houses. They're eating at the same table with each other. That may seem totally normal to us. But you have to keep in mind that in the Old Testament period, Jewish people were prohibited from any significant interaction with Gentiles. A Jewish person was not allowed to go into the home of a Gentile. A Jewish person was certainly not allowed to sit down and have a meal with a Gentile person. But Peter sees that these Gentiles have believed in Jesus, the Messiah. They have experienced the forgiveness of their sins. And most importantly, they've received the Holy Spirit just as he did. And so he concludes rightly that through faith in Jesus, the Messiah, God has accepted these Gentile people into the family of God. And therefore, he joins in with Paul and the others in having fellowship with them. But then some other Jewish Christians come from Jerusalem. We call them Judaizers. When they get to Antioch, they have a very different reaction. They're appalled that Jews are having fellowship around the table with Gentiles. And what they actually teach is summarized very nicely in those first two verses of Acts chapter 15. It says, Some men came down from Jerusalem to Antioch and were teaching the brothers, Unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. In other words, in their mind, it's not enough for these Gentiles simply to have faith in Jesus, the Messiah. They also have to become Jewish. The men need to be circumcised. They all need to live according to the rules and the regulations that God gave the people of Israel in the law of Moses. And so, under pressure from these leaders, Peter began to withdraw from the fellowship with the Gentile believers in Antioch. And of course, when the Apostle Peter separated himself from the fellowship, all of the other Jewish believers in Antioch separated themselves from the Gentile believers as well. And so now, right before Paul's very eyes, everything that he's worked for is falling apart. And so Paul confronts Peter on his hypocrisy, not heresy, because Peter knows the truth. He believes the truth. But out of fear of man, he's not living consistently with it. And who of us has not been guilty of that? And before we look at exactly what Paul said to Peter on that occasion, it's important for you to understand that both the Judaizers and Paul agree that being saved and belonging to God's family or the people of God are inseparable. Those who are saved are those who belong to God's people. Those who belong to God's people are those who are saved. The Judaizers look at the Old Testament and they conclude to belong to God's people, you have to be Jewish. And therefore, it's not enough for these Gentiles simply to believe in Jesus. Paul goes the other way, right? Since we're saved by faith in Jesus and his death on the cross, in the new covenant, the people of God must be redefined to include both Jewish and Gentile believers. All right? With that background then, let's look at what Paul reminded Peter of on that occasion and what he wants to teach the Galatians and us through what he said. And the first thing we notice in this passage is that for Paul, the deeper issue in this conflict between him and the Judaizers is clearly justification. 
Notice what he says in verses 15 and 16 to Peter now. We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. Because by works of the law, no one will be justified. Now, it's important to understand that this language of justification or being justified comes from the courtroom. Okay? Um, We can see that in a lot of different places in the Old Testament scriptures. So, for example... Deuteronomy chapter 25, verse 1 says, If there is a dispute between men and they come into court, and the judges decide between them, acquitting or justifying the innocent, in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, the word that's used there is the same word that Paul uses for justifying, and condemning the guilty, right? So justification has to do with the status, the legal status that is given to you by the judge when he rules in your favor. It's the legal status that you have when the judge declares, he gives a verdict that you are in the right according to the law. You're not guilty. So let me give an example just to be sure we're clear on that. Let's say that I accuse Ben Eastburn of stealing my car because that's the kind of thing we might suspect Ben of doing, right? Yeah. Ben and I go to court, right? Judge Judy or whoever hears all of the evidence that we both present and then Judge Judy renders her verdict and she says, Ben Eastburn is not guilty. That means Ben has been justified, you see. He's been given a legal status that has implications because it means that he's free from any punishment or any consequences that would be associated with the crime of theft. He's been declared righteous according to the law. But but just to make sure we understand exactly what justification is, let's imagine, just for the sake of argument, that Ben actually did steal my car. You see, it would not change the fact that he's still justified, even though he's guilty. In fact, he has a legal status before the court that he is in the right. Now, of course, in in our court systems, we try to avoid that, right? As as much as possible, we want the verdict to be be correct. But nevertheless, we know it, it is the case that sometimes the guilty are justified, and the innocent are condemned. And it's important for our purposes to understand that justification has to do with the verdict of the judge and the legal status that we receive as a result of that verdict. Now, what does all this have to do with God? Well, according to the Bible, human history ends in a courtroom. Right? There is a day coming, the last day, the final judgment, when we will all appear before God. And the Bible says over and over again in all sorts of ways that we will all have to give an account of what we have done in the body, whether good or evil. And God will render a verdict. 
He will either declare us to be righteous according to his law, or he will declare us to be guilty of transgressing his law. And of course, God's verdict is infallible, right? He knows everything as the judge. He is perfectly just. And the Bible says over and over again, there is no favoritism with him. His verdict will be true. And so the question then you see is, how can a sinner like me ever hope to be justified on that day? Let alone to know now, moment by moment, that I will be justified then. That is one of the great questions that the gospel answers. And it's the question that Paul is answering as he reminds Peter of the gospel and he teaches us what this great truth of justification is about in this passage. Now, first of all, notice that what Paul says is that justification is not by works of the law, right? I mean, Paul mentions that uh, three times, I think, in verses 15 and 16. He says to Peter, we ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners, yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. Now, obviously, Paul clearly thinks that's the view of his opponents, the Judaizers, right? When the Judaizers say, these Gentile Christians, it is not enough for them simply to believe in Jesus in order to be saved. They also have to become Jewish and have to do the things that God commands in the Old Testament law, they are implying that at least in part their justification is based on doing the works of the law. And for the Apostle Paul, even though he believes that keeping God's commands is incredibly important for our life and our experience of blessing, there are at least two major reasons why it can never be the basis of our acceptance or our justification before God. The first reason why our justification, our acceptance and approval before God can never be based on on our doing the works that God commands is simply sin. None of us actually adequately does what the law requires. But in fact, we break God's law, his commands in our thoughts and in our words and our actions every day. Now, Paul's Old Testament proof text for that is um, Psalm 143, verse 2 which says, enter not into judgment with your servant, for no one living is righteous before you. And Paul expands on that verse in great detail in the first three chapters of his letter to the Romans. But he hints at it here, even in this uh, short passage to the Galatians, in verse 16 where he says, because by works of the law, No one 
will be justified. And it's unfortunate, the ESV kind of misses the boat on the translation here, I'm sorry to say. Paul's literal words are, because by works of the law, no flesh will be justified. And flesh is the specific word that Paul uses when he wants to describe humanity in its fallen condition. And so what Paul is saying here is actually is that given who we are and, and, and the fallen world in which we live and our own fallen condition, there is no one who will be declared righteous before God on the basis of their works, of their attempt to keep God's commandments. And in Romans 1-3, to he makes it very clear that the Jews who have the law of God, who know who the true God is and know what his will is, they won't be justified on the basis of trying to do what the law requires. And the Gentiles who don't even have the law and have no idea who the true God is or what he requires, they certainly won't be justified by any uh, works that they try to do. Right? Sin means that there can be no justification. There can be no hope that on the last day I will be able to stand before God and say, yeah, pretty much I'm here on the basis of what I've done. I feel pretty confident right now. Right? Now, some of you may be thinking, isn't Paul being just a little bit excessively morbid and pessimistic? I mean, yeah, nobody's perfect, but surely God will overlook a few minor mistakes, right? I mean, when I look around at other people, they seem to be pretty decent folks, by and large, and I get along with them okay. What's the problem here? Well, the problem actually is that we do just that. We look around at one another to evaluate our standing, rather than looking at the holiness of God and what He reveals is required of us in His law. I mean, Jesus says the whole law is summed up pretty simply. Just love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and love your neighbor as yourselves. How are you all doing with those two commands? I fail every day. There's things I love more than God, things I desire more than Him, things I give myself to more fully. And let's not even talk about loving and caring for and putting the needs of others ahead of my own, right? When I was a kid, I grew up in rural Indiana, and I rode uh, the bus to school an hour each way every day. And on the way to school, we went by a pig farm, a massive pig farm, okay? If the wind was blowing in the right... (laughs) You can go out here. It's cool. (laughs) It's all good, so head out. (laughs) If the wind was blowing in the right direction, I mean, we would drive by, and even on the bus, the stench would be overwhelming. You'd be like, oh, my gosh, and everybody would, you know, we're going to vomit. And even as a kid, I remember thinking to myself, the pigs seem so happy. They seem to be completely unaware of how awful they smell. I don't need to spell out where this illustration is going, do I? But it does bring up, actually, one very important purpose of God's law. Paul mentions in verse 19 when he says, Through the law I died to the law, so I might live to God. And then he explains more fully what he means in chapter 3, that... 
one of the main purposes of, of the law and why God gave the law to the people of Israel before the Messiah is so that the whole world would see in the history of Israel their repeated struggles to keep the law and their failures to do so. And that the world would say, if my goodness, even the chosen people of God can't live consistently according to his law, what hope is there for us? And then the Messiah appears. Right? And the law drives us into the arms of Jesus, where we find salvation. The second reason, first reason that Paul says there's no justification by works of the law, by trying to do what God commands, is sin. The second reason is simply the cross. Look at what he says in verse 21. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. If there was any chance that God would just sort of overlook our sins, or there was any possibility that we could be justified on the last day, you know, simply by putting in a good effort, do you really suppose that God would have allowed His only Son to endure the horrors of the cross? For Paul, this is the absolute end to any notion that there could be justification or righteousness or acceptance with God in any other way than through faith in Jesus and his death on the cross in our behalf. So that brings us, that's the first point Paul makes here is that justification is not by works of the law. That brings us to the positive point, which is that justification is by faith in Jesus Christ. So again, Paul says this, Almost as many times as he says that justification is not by works of the law. He says to Peter, we ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. We know, even we know as Jews, that a person's not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. Because by works of the law, no one will be justified. I want to make just three points about justifying faith, then I'll close. The first point is that justifying faith involves both believing certain things about Jesus and believing in Jesus, right? So it involves both confessing with the Apostle Peter, you are the Christ Jesus, the Son of the living God, and and actually believing Everything that the Bible says goes along with those words, that Jesus is the Christ and the Son of the living God. Based, everything the Bible says that that means in terms of his birth, his life, his death, and his resurrection. Justifying faith means we have to actually believe those things to be true. But it's not just believing them to be true intellectually. It's also relying upon and trusting in the person of Jesus and what he has done for us. Justifying faith is an incredibly personal thing. That comes out so clearly in verse 20 of this passage, which if you're in search of a life verse, here's a good one. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. You see how personal those words are. 
Justifying faith means believing the Son of God went to the cross for you because he loved you. And justifying faith is a response to that love that believes in who Jesus is, that trusts his death on that cross to deal with the problem of your sins and ensure that you have a full acceptance with God the Father and to trust that he will lead you into the abundant life God always intended you for you to enjoy through his teaching and his example. Uh, but how does that work exactly? I mean, how does faith in Jesus actually justify us? I mean, to go back to my earlier question, how does believing in Jesus deal with the problem or how does it answer the question of how God can be both a just God and declare me, a sinner, to be righteous? How, how does faith in Jesus solve that conundrum? Well, the, the answer, as our own catechism puts it so beautifully, is that when the Spirit of God works faith in us, that faith unites us to Jesus. It unites us to him in such a way that he becomes our representative before God. It unites us to him in such a way that his actions are now for us. They're in our behalf. And so as Paul summarizes in Romans 4.25, he says, He, that is Jesus, was delivered up for our transgressions and was raised for our justification. In other words, when the Son of God went to that cross, He went there for us. All of our sins, the sins of all those who would believe in Jesus, were placed on God's Son. And in that moment, what God saw was all of our sins there on the cross. And the Father pours out His righteous wrath upon Jesus. That's why Jesus cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Right? He pours out His wrath until it is exhausted, and there's nothing left to pour out. Jesus drinks the cup of God's wrath to the dregs so that we can drink this cup, right? The cup of salvation. But now there's Jesus dead. The only righteous man who ever lived is under the sentence of death for our sins. Well, that's not just. So God raises him. From the dead, And in raising him, he declares to the whole world, not only that this Jesus is the Christ, as he said, but that he is righteous. And because we are united to him, that declaration of righteousness upon Jesus, because of who he really is, is credited, it's given to us. So that God sees us as being as righteous as his son. And the amazing thing about all of this, of course, is that, is that we can know now through faith in Jesus, I can live each moment of my life in the certainty of that what will happen on the last day when I stand before God at the final judgment is that he'll say, not guilty. Well done, good and faithful servant. Not because of me. <laughs> I'm actually a sinner who deserves judgment, but because of Jesus in whom I've placed my faith. Second thing I want to say about justifying faith is that justifying faith produces good works. Okay, so you know, Paul's very adamant here 
we're not justified, we're not accepted with God on the basis of our attempt to keep God's command or to do the works that he requires, but justifying faith because it unites us to Jesus and and the work of his spirit in us always results in doing more good works. Paul actually says this later in Galatians chapter 5, verse 6. He says, in Christ Jesus, what counts for justification is neither circumcision nor uncircumcision. That is, it doesn't matter whether you're Jewish or Gentile. What counts is faith, working through love. That is, what counts for justification is a faith in Jesus, a faith that also always works in doing loving things that fulfill the law of God after all. This is what James means in his famous passage where he says, faith without works is dead, right? The kind of faith that justifies is only a faith that also produces works because we're united to Jesus and we've received his renewing, transforming spirit. Here's the third thing, the last thing I want to say about justifying faith. Because justifying faith unites us to the Son of God, um, our justification is always inseparable from our adoption. Right? As faith in Jesus not only leaves us justified before God as the judge, it, it also leaves us adopted into the family of God as our heavenly Father. That is, by faith, God not only sees us in the way he sees Jesus in terms of his perfect obedience to the law, he also sees us the way he sees Jesus in terms of his fatherly delight and love and approval of him. So through faith in Jesus, it's it's not like we're just left as if we were faithful, obedient servants who God will say, not guilty, thank you very much, and you can go your way. As wonderful as that would be to know that God's going to consider us to be faithful servants, even though we haven't been, really. No, God's grace is much bigger than that. God also adopts us into his family and considers us to be his dearly loved sons and daughters. I always feel like one of the best examples I've seen of that truth comes from a movie called Anna and the King. came out a long time ago. It was a remake of a movie called The King and I, which was when, way back when the Anna and the King stars Chow Yun-Fat and Jodie Foster. The original one starred Yul Brenner and I think Julie Andrews, if you're old enough to remember who those people are. But in Anna and the King, as I remember, the movie begins with Chow Yun-Fat seated on his throne as the king of Siam, and, and the throne room is filled with servants who are lying on their faces on the floor, and it's obvious that they've incurred the displeasure of their master. There's a frown on the king's face. The servants don't even dare look up to him as they beg for mercy. It's actually kind of a picture of what the final judgment will be like for those who don't know God. And then as you're kind of, the weight of all that is sinking in on you, suddenly the doors in the back of the throne room burst open, and this little girl comes tearing down the middle of the aisle right through all the servants, and she runs right up onto the podium, and she jumps into the king's lap. And for just a moment, you think something horrible is about to happen, but then the king's frown turns to a smile, and he puts his arm around the little girl as she settles down into his lap, and you realize, oh, of course, The little girl's not just the king's servant, she's the king's daughter. 
And therefore, she's always the object of his delight and his affection. That's what's true of you through faith in Jesus. You're not only a considered to be a faithful servant, you're a son or a daughter of the king. And that's why I do not believe it's inappropriate or blasphemous when you read the story of Jesus' baptism, you know, and he, he comes out of the water, and remember the heavens open, and the Father actually declares from the heavens, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. I think it's completely appropriate for you to read that passage and think, that's what the Father says about me. This is my beloved son. This is my beloved daughter in whom I am well pleased. Not because of anything we have done, but because of faith in Jesus. So to go back to the question where we began, how can you live in absolute certainty that you have the love and the delight and the approval of God as your heavenly Father. The answer Paul gives is only, sola fide, only by faith in Jesus Christ. Let, let me try to explain this remarkable truth this way. If you were to believe on Jesus right now, sitting there in that chair where you are, if you were to say in your mind, Lord Jesus, I... I think I believe what the scriptures say about who you are and I trust your death on the cross for the forgiveness of my sins and I want to live my life from now on for you. If you were to do that right now, where you're seated in that chair, you would be as loved and accepted and approved as the Apostle Paul is in heaven. Actually, you'd be as loved and accepted and approved as God's own son. Think about that. 10,000 years from now, you will not be more loved or more accepted or more delighted in than you would be right now sitting in that chair through faith in Jesus. Your love for God will grow. Your faith and trust in God will grow. Your obedience to God and his commands will grow. In fact, it must grow. But your love by God, your approval by the Father, your acceptance with the Father cannot grow because you would be as acceptable and approved and loved as his own dear son through faith in him. That's what the doctrine of justification means. That's what's already true of each one of you who have in fact believed in Jesus. So live in the knowledge, in the absolute certainty that you have the delight and the approval of your heavenly Father. Amen. This has been a ministry of City Life Church in St. Paul, Minnesota. We hope you were encouraged by this teaching. Thank you for listening, and please contact us at info at citylifetc.org if we can be of service to you. Peace be with you.